Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change power and success in the world. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory there is no survival. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. U-turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. The world of reality has its limits. The world of imagination is boundless. Is a quote from Jean-Jacques Rousseau the Genevan philosopher, writer, and composer. His political philosophy influenced the progress of the Enlightenment throughout Europe, as well as aspects of the French Revolution and the development of modern political, economic, and educational thought. I thought this was an appropriate quote for today, as our guest also originates from Switzerland, has had an international career, and like all good CEOs, brings a unique approach to solving problems, appreciates the value of imagination, and is not afraid to go against conventional wisdom. This is an illuminating discussion about facts over personality, about the preparedness to challenge the status quo, the focus on the opportunity and having the courage to place the big bets and make the calls in a competitive and rapidly changing business environment. Our guest today is Matt Beckier, Chief Executive Officer and Managing Director of Star Entertainment Group. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners, Executive Search and Board Advisory Firm. In this episode, Matt shares with us some fascinating insights. What gives leaders the edge? The willingness to commit to action and go over the trench and how to build that top team. We cover his views on the impact of data and analytics, AI, as well as the enormous opportunities for Australia's tourism industry, and more broadly, Australia. So sit back and enjoy this thought-provoking discussion. The world of reality has its limits. The world of imagination is boundless. Matt, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Matt, where did you grow up? I grew up in a small town in Switzerland called St. Gallen. Quite famous for their library? Yes, You've clearly done your research. You want to talk us about that library? Uh, it goes back to 612, actually. Irish monk uh, with his colleague was on the way on a pilgrimage to Rome, falls over, falls sick. Then uh, his mates, follow monks, ditch him, go That's off right. to Rome, and he is left behind to die. But then a bear comes out of the woods, rescues him. And the locals um, who the area had been Christianized on the Roman occupation, but yeah. then the locals build a shrine. Out of the shrine, they build a little monastery. Out of the monastery, they build a big monastery. And it turns out to be one of the UNESCO World Heritage um, monuments nowadays. And the library, um, you went to the library as a young kid? Had to. I was just wondering, because I understand your family is very strong in academia. Yep, yep. 
And was what were your what were your parents? Were they lecturers at universities? Yeah, my father was a professor of nuclear medicine. My mum uh, had studied had done zoology, but on my parents' side, but both my parents' side, there's lots of academics. That was sort of the expectation, I think, for for us to grow up. So you chose a different route. Well, you know, it's um, so my my way into finance was a bit circuitous. I started out doing literature. And then uh, after about a year, I realized that the um, commercial prospects were probably reasonably limited. Mm-hmm. And so I did what my father had strongly advised against and went to medical school. Oh, did you really? And uh, pretty much failed at signing in procedures and then <laughs> came home <laughs> with my tail between my legs. And then um, I think it was my mom basically said, why don't you do economics to work out what you're going to do when you grow up? Yep. And so that's uh, why I did economics. So you took the safe option. I took the safe option. That's right. And then from economics, do you begin a career in consulting? Yeah. How did you get chosen to go to McKinsey? So I, um, I did, a, did a master's and then later on a PhD in finance. Mm. And so McKinsey just seemed like, or consulting, seemed like a reasonably safe option for somebody who had been sort of uh, tempted by academia, but actually wanted to have a little bit more real world connectivity. And it was a great way to explore different industries. At that point, I still hadn't worked out what I wanted to do uh, career-wise. I didn't really have the clear vision to say, I want to get into banking or watchmaking or chocolate making, whatever it is in Switzerland. So. And you were still based in Switzerland? I started, uh, well, I was all over the world, but I started McKinsey in Sydney. Okay. And what were your first type of clientele? Because here comes a Swiss person coming to represent McKinsey. What, did they, what sort of clients did they put you in in, in Australia? Um, I can probably disclose this now, but this is my first piece of work was um, a bit of cost cutting oh, in one it? of the big financial institutions. What's the takeaways from the experience at McKinsey's? Look, it's, um, I was there for 15 years yep. in consulting, about 15 years. And I think the big impression that is left on me was how to make good decisions based on facts. And that's something that I'm trying to take into STAR. That's been sort of shaping the way I've been trying to um, shape the DNA at STAR, that we, that we make decisions not based on philosophies or premeditated conceptions of the world, but mm-hmm. actually look at the facts and challenge challenge um, paradigm. So it's not based on the Chief Exec's personality then? No, and our industry is rich of big personalities. If you sort of look, at, look around the industry, yeah. you know, Steve Wynn, um, yeah. you know, Packer, Crown, they're, they're all big personalities. And what I try to deliberately do is, is try to institute a more fact-based, consumer-centric, modern uh, way to, to making decisions. So Matt, what are the facts telling you? Facts are telling me that we have a fantastic opportunity in front of us. In what regards? There's a couple of big trends that we're building our business on. Mm-hmm. One is tourism, and everybody's sort of cotton on to that. Yep. But you know, Australia is on the doorsteps of Asia. By every bit of customer research in, in China, Australia comes in in number one or two or three, whether it's by in terms of desirability or intention to go. But in reality, we're only about 14th yeah. in terms of the destinations. Yep. So even Switzerland uh, often comes, comes ahead of Australia in those rankings. Um, so tourism is a big one. The second big opportunity is the fact that Australians are changing our lifestyle. And you know, historically, only about 5.3% of GDP has gone into going out. That used to be 4% 
about 10 years ago. Okay. It's growing quickly. And in Europe, it's over 10% pretty much across the board. You know, in countries like Greece, not that that's a role model for fiscal responsibility, something like 18%. So going out means discretionary income? Discretionary income, drinking, uh, eating out. And as people move back into the cities, they're no longer entertainment at home. If you go to in the US, New York, the big cities, yep. nobody, nobody entertains at home. Everybody entertains by going out. And I think that's what's happening. And for us in our industry, that creates a lot of opportunity in hospitality. All right, we've jumped a little bit here, Matt. Before we talk about the industry in depth, can you yep. talk me through, you're finishing your, your 15 years at McKinsey and you move into a finance role. Yep. And you start in a well-known brand. Maybe you want to talk us through the stepping stones to take that role on. And also, I guess, from a headhunter's point of view, did you get much pushback in those days from conservative Australia? not being necessarily the CPA, the CA for being the CFO. I had a PhD in finance. I know. I do take some umbrage here. <laughs> you, know, you, call me, you call me unqualified? <laughs> Qualified by experience, Matt, <laughs> but I'm just saying. You know, look, you know Australian market. Yeah. It's conservative. Yeah. Look, Tapcorp at that time had gone through a string of acquisitions. Yep. My practice areas have been finance, banking, as well as mergers and acquisitions. And so in my career at McKinsey, I did probably about 80 mergers around the world. Is that right? Okay. And so Tapcorp had acquired a lot of business. Uh, the TAB in New South Wales most recently was looking yep. to do more and was looking to integrate all of them. So uh, they were looking for a CFO who could contribute on the commercial side and knew how that was going to be done. And so I came in essentially with a mandate to both look at additional acquisitions but then also integrate what was there. And the first part of that mandate disappeared pretty quickly. And then really the second part of the mandate became much more important. And what attracts you to the gaming industry? I um, probably didn't do a lot of research in that space. You know, I've done 15 years with McKinsey. I had worked in Europe, in, I'd lived in North America, uh, in Asia, in Australia, and I ended up traveling just such an enormous amount of time yeah. that when, you know, the uh, then Math the CEO, Matthew Slatter, came up mm -hmm. and uh, let me know that they're looking for a CFO and we have worked together in the past when he was in banking. I just put my hand forward just basically on based, based on his personality and the fact that I knew him, knew him well, and I wanted to do something else. So I know you're nodding your head. It's crazy. Yeah, and I didn't do a lot of research into the industry. This is the man who's fact-based. Yeah, at that point, so this is the little sob story here, but um, you know, a couple of months prior to Matthew calling, I uh, remember coming home. I, I would be traveling about six days a week. Enormous and um, I was running out, I was opening the door, and my wife had opened the door, and we are coming into the house in Hong Kong. And the three kids, and they're all on the, they're just on the three, they're all running up the corridor and they go, Mommy, Matt. Like, all right. That stings. And <laughs> because all they ever heard was, you know, the gun at the end of the phone. Yeah. And so um, I was just done. And, yeah. you know, the, the reality is I started at McKinsey because um, I liked the problem solving side of things. And then I ended up in a role that was all business development, client development. And I wasn't particularly good at that. Okay. All right. You walked into Tabcorp. Walked into Tabcorp. Going through an enormous amount of change. Yep. Lost the first CEO in about nine months. I was going to say, what did you inherit? Um, 
Look, I, in terms of the finance function, um, I inherited a very competent team, uh, including a deputy CFO who complimented me almost perfectly. You know, okay. somebody who was uh, a career uh, CFO and who I could work together with really well. And so mm-hmm. I learned on the job an enormous amount from him and um, probably qualified you know, through his, through his uh, tutelage and mentoring. In terms of the wider business, you know what I learned? I, I, you know, my mandate was to integrate, but it became pretty clear that it was a disparate set of businesses that had been acquired that really shouldn't be integrated. There was a casinos business, there's a wagering business. They didn't really have a lot to do with each other. And so that very early on, I think, made it clear to us that we needed to probably look at the separation of the different types of assets out of TechCorp. Did you drive that? Uh, together with the board and then particularly the second, the next CEO, CEO um, Elmer Funke Cooper, yeah. who, yep. who I think uh, t- uh, totally agreed with that uh, direction. Okay. CFO to CEO, Matt. Not an easy transition. Yeah. What do you think qualifies the CFO to make the move to the CEO? Um, depends on the company. Depends on our circumstances. I wouldn't say that that the CFO is always the right person to lead the company or any company. Um, I think what qualified me were the circumstances. You know, somebody very unkindly described me as the Steve Bradbury of uh, corporate Australia. Like after every other CEO had fallen over in front of me, they were running out of options. And so um, I think one of the journalists said um, he may have been an okay CFO, uh, but let's see how you know whether he's got the you know the goods to be a CEO. But then again, the bar's been so low, so how bad can it be? Well, on that platform, <laughs> <laughs> share price dived on my appointment. Yeah. So, so talk us through. So you got, you got the phone at, call, and I got, well, I was I was the um, director of finance at that time. So I was mm. on the board. I was uh, um, observing close up all the things that were going on in the company, and I mm. had a reasonably clear view of what should happen should happen differently and made that view clear. So I think when the opportunity arose, the board looked at me as as an option to implement a coherent plan. And that's why I got the opportunity to lead the company. So what was the plan prior? Was it leadership based on personality, leadership based on historically, this is the way we've always done it from point of view from the U.S., Asia, we're going to roll it out in Australia the same way, or look, we had we had in the first two years of the company we had two CEOs, so um, there were a lot of different plans and different personalities, yeah, and with different emphasis. And um, my plan was to, as I said early on, mm-hmm. you know, get us out of trouble, simplify the business, take cost out, and then professionalize the way we do business. And just de-risk it. The fundamentals of our business are extremely strong, and we needed to stop making mistakes. And I thought I knew what had to be done to make sure that we keep out of trouble. So, in your mind, what is the star? What does where, where does it begin and end? The star is um, an integrated resort company, and I say that deliberately because when I started at TapCorp. The casinos division yep. reported 95% of its revenue as coming from gaming. 
Yes. Now it's 80. It will be in the 70s by the time I'm done. Revenue from gaming has continued to grow really strongly, but it's the hospitality side of things, the non-gaming side of things that is growing even faster. And, and that's deliberate because there's so much gaming in Australia. You know, there's 100,000 slot machines in New South Wales alone. Is that right? Just sticking another slot machine out there isn't going to bring a customer in. It's yeah. all about being being able to offer something that's different. So when you inherited, what, what was on the board then, on the board's mind at the time? You said you said you'll get the first thing you said we're going to pull ourselves out of trouble. How well, how bad was the trouble? Oh, uh, look, we have been pretty accident prone. I mean, that's uh, we have been pretty accident prone in terms of some of the behaviours, yes. some of the personalities, yep. uh, our government relations, and so uh, you know we needed to de-risk and make sure that we stop making these mistakes. And the expansion and the the vision that you you now have, was that anywhere to be seen by the board or by your, your forerunners? Some some people on the board certainly saw it, and certainly the CEO before me had um, both great capability and great um, belief in the opportunity that the company had. But, you know, there was, there was a on – the, on the journey was – the way I described it to the team was a journey in sort of three stages. Stage one was I called a cleaning house. I don't want to talk about new developments or expansion or anything else until we've cleaned house. And cleaning house is all about reducing costs, delayering, making sure everybody knows who's responsible for what, introducing more streamlined systems, better decision-making. We'll do this for a little while. And with that, performance will improve. Once we've done that, we can start to build muscle in the areas that are going to be competitively relevant. Yep. And for us, that meant investing into loyalty, uh, expanding into hospitality okay. in the areas that really matter. And then we can start to change the game after that. And the game changer for us was the bid for Queen's Wharf in Brisbane. Okay. You may recall this is about started in 2013-14. Um, in the end, it was a two-horse race, us against uh, Crown. Yeah. And that was um, a big deal for us because the winning Queen's Wharf would secure a very – important growth pi pipeline for us. Losing it would have meant um, we're running out of options and probably would have to think about you know, a breakup of the company or selling the assets individually. So you did win? We won. I remember, you know, I remember the day we were waiting for, uh, we knew that a decision had been made and we'd been told that the winner would be given 24 hours notice so they could get to Brisbane to congratulate, you know, I'll be there with for the photo op with the, with the Premier. And we're in my office and the phone call's not coming. <laughs> so I'm there with my closest <laughs> allies and the phone is not ringing. Suddenly, um, I think it was Peter, uh, stuck his head in and said, oh, it's going to be at the five o'clock news. There's going to be an announcement about oh, really? about Queen's Wharf. And then it was five o'clock. Queensland time, which is six o'clock, sitting down the other way. So it's so we still have an hour to go, and I'm, we're all sitting in the office and say, "How could we lose this one? We've done, we've done everything. We've led such a great campaign. Where did we misread it?" Suddenly, the phone call rings, and it's a company secretary from um, chief legal counsel from Brisbane who says, "Oh, just got a phone call from government. You know, we won." I said, bullshit. <laughs> Not the time to joke. I said, no, 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 no. 
no, no, the big announcement's tomorrow. You've got to come up, you know? And I said, oh, okay. Uh, you know, uh, you call the chairman. Uh, so we spring into action. And then, you know, there's this frantic activity in my office. And I was in this glass box. And I look outside and I realize we're on this big open plant floor. And there's like a hundred people staring at us. They all knew that we're waiting for the call. And you realize, like, you look in the eyes of these people. Yeah. They're all trying to read what had happened. Like ran up, you know, threw myself at the glass, started jumping around, and fantastic. What was the edge? There's no second chance. You're the chief exec. What, what got you guys over the line? What got us across the line was a partnership with a whole bunch of people that all contributed distinctive capability. So as part of the deal... We deviated from the traditional textbook solution, which said, you know, we pitch and then we find the people to help us build stuff and do stuff. We brought in partners and we brought in partners, most notably with Charter Fulcan Far East out of Hong Kong, Mm -hmm. who had hospitality expertise, had property development expertise, had a large customer base in our core source markets. Um, and had a strong balance sheet. Um, and it, it, that was the foundation. And then we complemented that with, we brought in the right people for food and beverage for our tourism pitch. And, and, and we spent a lot of time in Brisbane talking to the people in Brisbane about what they thought Brisbane needed to, you know, become a world city. And, I think that that made the difference. Just orchestrating everything, orchestrating that. And also, when you stand back, Matt, at the beginning of that exercise, as a chief exec and as a team, you don't know every answer. So, how do you go about finding the people to help you put that together and understand the answers? And how much did you change your mind during that process, from beginning to, as you say, jumping up, everybody looking through the window at you? In other words, how agile, Matt, malleable change of course, et cetera, did you, or was it that's what we set out to do and you ticked it all along the way? I would say that, you know, when you start, you kind of look through the clouds and there's a blurry light, but then as you as the, as the pitch progresses and you learn more about what is required and what the competitors are doing, the, the clouds start to disappear and you start to see the the sun more and more clearly till you have a totally clear view of what you're shooting for. And so I think it's just a, it's almost like a f- inverse funnel where you just get closer and closer and clearer and clearer as you, as you zoom in. And, um, you know, we knew at the beginning that the project to win was too big for us to do a bar on. We didn't have the credibility. We didn't have the credibility in, from a property development. We didn't have a build apartments. We didn't have all the hotel brands that we would need to be able to bring to the table. Yeah. So, so we knew that we needed needed partners, but which ones precisely? That just sort of became clear as we we went through. And how important was it if I'm going to be one of those partners? The reputation of the CEO in terms of who we selected or well, our got, reputation? Well, you're, yeah, well, firstly, you've selected them, but I've got to come and say, yes, I'm going to join you, and I'm not going to put my name to you. So I don't think 
anybody joined us because of me. Okay. But they may have joined us because of some of the people on our team. So if I look at the team that we had leading this effort, we had, you know, with Michael Hodgson, you know, one of the leading food guys, you know, food food um, strategist in Australia, who knew all of the relevant, you know, foodies and who we needed to bring on board. Yeah. We had a great CFO, uh, sorry, great um, commercial manager who led the partnership negotiations with Chata Fulcum Far East. We had a great corporate affairs person leading the you know community engagement and and bringing the right people on board on that side. So, so I don't think people knew joined because joined up on our team because of me. They joined up because of the team and because um, of what we tried to build. What's next? So, next is a lot of work. <laughs> so we've won. And we, the partnership with Charter Fulcan Far East since then has developed really nicely, which has given rise to additional development opportunities in the Gold Coast and in uh, Sydney. And yeah. we're pursuing these opportunities now. So I think, you know, I'd like to think that I'm sort of halfway through where, where I want to go. The first five years was all about establishing the options and the platform. Yeah. Now it's about building the legacy, if you want, of executing against these things and building the company that we can look at, you know, that will be Australia's leading integrated resort company. So you talk us through your style there, mate. You Like you said, you're very calm, you're very methodical. You said you don't play the personality card. I'm so, Swiss. I can't do that. Okay. I'd love to. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you operate and how do you bring these people on board? How do you sell, how do you sell the vision? Um, look, the vision for me so is two parts. One is the question of where we want to go. To me, that is truly analytically accessible and is just a question of communicating the relevant facts in a, co in a coherent way to convince people that that's the right way. You know, why do we need more hospitality? Why do we need more hotels? I can explain that. I've got all the facts. We've done all the work. We yeah. know where to go. And, and, and I think the direction, you know, I feel, I feel absolutely convinced is the right one and that we have the right facts for that. Okay. The second part of how we want to get there and what sort of company we want to be yep. is much harder. And that's why I sort of am probably very much informed by the 15 years of management consulting because I want us to be super professional, fact-based, rational, fast, hardworking, successful. And are the developments that you've got planned, do you think they're going to come to fruition? Yeah. We're looking good. I'm really, really confident in the team, and I mean, I'm very, very confident in the opportunity. So, what are we looking at here, Matt? From, from the uh, the audience's point of view, what's you're looking at a company that is pretty much going to double in size over the next five years. Okay. Um, you're looking at a very substantial expansion of our of our footprint, and the revenue is going to come in what form, Matt? And, um, and from where? Look, the revenue is going to come uh, from market share gains in the local market. Yes. We've gained market share consistently over the last five years. That was all this building muscle, getting better at loyalty, getting better at marketing, marketing analytics. Yep. It gains, it'll come from bringing, tapping into the tourism flow. Yeah. And as I said earlier on, it's such a big opportunity, Greg. Yep. It's, it's infuriating that 
Australia is losing share yep. in the global tourism market because we don't have enough hotel rooms. Is that what it comes down to, or is it yes. just we're not getting our message out well enough? No, not enough hotel rooms. So Tourism Australia has a beautiful forecast that says on past trends, Australia will uh, you know, have basically about 15 million international visitors between now and 2037. In order to do that, we have to build 750 to 1,000 hotels in Australia. Um, I'm aware of two in Sydney. That's right. Um, so I'm not sure where all the other activities happening right now. And how many five-star rule, genuine five-stars do we actually have? Exactly. So that is a gigantic opportunity. And where is government in this discussion? Are we making enough efforts to build the relationships to bring the tourism? Look, um, like you say, the economy is missing out here on a gold mine if we get it right, Matt. I'd love to see, I'd love to see more support. Um, I think New Zealand is probably yeah. the, the standout case do you really? Of, of how tourism is being done and being promoted by government. Um, I'd love us to put the same emphasis on that. And, you know, our current prime minister used to be chief executive of Tourism Australia, so he certainly gets it. Uh, I'd love to see more support. You know, to, if, if I give you an example, mm -hmm. if, if you're uh, applying for a visa from some of the countries in Southeast Asia, yep. you have to give more information to the Australian authorities to get a visa than you need to for your tax return. That cannot be good. No. No, we're not doing ourselves any favours. As a chief exec, how much do you focus on the competition? A lot. Okay. So competition in Sydney? I'm a very bad loser. Anybody who's ever played a game with me knows that. Okay, you very seriously said that as well. <laughs> okay. What's going to be the impact then? with Crown building their casino in Sydney. Yeah. Um, Is it positive that there's more people coming to the hotels? It's going to be different for different parts of our customer segments, yeah. our customer base. For the international VIP business, um, it's going to be a good thing for Sydney and therefore a good thing for us. For the domestic market, Australia already has the highest per capita spend on gaming in the world. So, you know, if you get the additional capacity in, it just means more competition. So, some good, some not so good. We um, are going to make, well, we are doing everything we possibly can to minimize the impact. But the competition is already around us. You know, it was last week or the week before, we went out through the western suburbs of Sydney to look at some of the pubs that have unbelievable gaming numbers. Absolutely. And, you know, I think, you know, that's, it's absolutely critical for everybody to know in our company what the competition looks like. And what's the competition in the sense of globally, Matt? Do you, do you mirror, maybe not mirror, Matt, but what, what organizations do you follow very closely and admire in this sector? Um, I admire, I admire the Marriott Group. Um, it's such a fantastically diverse, multi-brand hospitality chain with some of the best brands like the Ritz-Carlton, St. Regis, with distinct personalities, well-executed consistently across the world with an unbelievably strong loyalty base that channels 70% of the volume, not through not through um, travel agents or aggregators, but directly to the directly to those brands. That is a phenomenal hospitality business. So, where, where's your loyalty base in this, in, in that sense? 
Where's uh, your stats? Uh, we have about 1.2, 1.3 million loyalty card holders. Yep. Um, they account for about 65 to 70% of our domestic revenue. So it's important. Okay. For the last three years, the loyalty base has outgrown the non-loyalty base sort of three to one. And, and what about in expenditure in the sense from international, man? How does it compare to domestic? The local and domestic business is about 88% of our earnings. So it's very important. Okay. Data, Matt, understanding customers, analytics, how much have you invested in that in the last three to five, five years? A lot and with a lot more to come. Um, I think we now have, you know, the systems, platforms, and everything we need to do the work. Now it's IP, and now it's now it's finding the people, asking the right questions of the data, and turning it into the relevant management action. You know, we can look at all of the trend charts and the correlations. Now we're sort of getting into the really interesting bits of what does this mean? How do we change our pricing? How do we change our, our customer service model to take advantage of these opportunities that we see? And on the customer service model, where, where do you put yourself or your industry compared to, um, say, pure top retailers in different parts of the world? Yeah, the, the higher I rate ourselves, the more likely I'm going to get some phone calls from from some of your listeners saying <laughs> that was my experience. So I'm, I'm, I'm a bit reluctant to say that. Look, in some pockets... We're world-class. So you take the Darling Hotel in Sydney. Yep. It's the only Forbes five-star rated hotel in Sydney. Yes. The best hotel in Sydney. And we got the accreditation five years after the hotel was built. So it's not the build form. It's not the amenities. It was just a feverish commitment by the whole team to get that uh, recognition. I'd love to see that replicated across the company. Okay. So if I come for an interview yep. and I get to meet the chief exec, what do you look for in executives? So if you come, uh, if you are being considered for a general manager or above, you will meet me and you will meet me and a head of HR and probably another couple of people from the executive team mm-hmm. because we are big believers that we need to test for fit. I will be testing for, you know, problem solving, for whether people are, you know, working and thinking in the way that I think we ought to be working. Uh, some of my colleagues will be testing for other parts, other f- uh, aspects of fit. What about the difference between leaders and managers, Matt? Now, there's comments out there that Australians are very good managers, but not necessarily, not necessarily willing to put the head above the parapet as a big or as a good leader. You've come from, you travel the world, you've come from offshore. What's your thoughts around that sort of discussion point? Mm. Look, um, I started, we started the discussion with my background and growing up in Switzerland, I am, you know, probably a lot more even keeled and level than you know most people are in this country um and so when i define leadership it's it's around it's against that it's not the big personality it's the um the willingness to commit to action and 
go over the trench and go over the trench with the team. That's what I think leadership is. And for that, I don't think you need a big personality. You know, your observation about Australians being great managers. Look, when I was when I was doing, you know, banking in Asia, I was blown away by how many Australians were across these banks. So there's clearly there's clearly a lot of talent um, out there. At some point, to get promoted in a organization, though, you need to take some risks. Yeah, and you need to expose. Your person, your views, and maybe that's where people are holding back. Because of the small country, where do I go to next? I lose my job here. I don't know. How do you, well? How do you encourage the right culture in your organisation? As you say, the next five years are going to be very, very exciting. You're wanting to leave a legacy. You've got to bring out the best of these individuals, which means some have got to stand up and take risks. Take risks, and. You know, as long, if we take risks and we do this on the, ba- on, the, on the basis of facts that we have considered and we know exactly why we're doing it, then there's really no downside. If it works, fantastic. If it doesn't work, there will be an important learning out of this. I don't want risk-taking for the sake of, you know, throwing stuff against the wall and see what sticks. Okay. Um, risk-taking has to be considered in the in against against a set of facts, but once you do that, then that was uh, the right professional decision to take at the time, with given the data that he had. And then, if it didn't work out, let's revisit what went wrong and learn and make a better decision next time. Okay. So I don't I don't I think what we're trying to encourage, what I'm trying to encourage personally, is that we that we learn from those mistakes and share that. And how, how important, Matt, is the future in regards to AI in your sector? Um, so AI is important and it starts being applied, particularly in our data analytics. Yeah. Uh, we also start to use a lot of it, which is quite unique to our industry, in um, fraud, fraud prevention and detection. Yep. There's some really exciting applications that we're seeing come through. And a lot of it comes out of law enforcement um, and it blends technologies from facial recognition to, you know, data mining and statistical analysis of win rates to detect deviations from expected expected, uh, outcomes and then links in the faces and the permutations of what's happening to allow human to very quickly zero in and work out what's there. So that's it's it's very exciting. Who's been your best boss? Oh, I've had so many. I've had so many great leaders that I've learned from. The only reason I ask is where do you take the time and how do you take the time to think? I um I take time to think it's almost a, a ritual for me on the weekends. I hop onto a mountain bike and go into the bush for a couple of hours and then come back full of new ideas. I I need time where I nobody talks to me and I'm just alone and can think. And I do that every week. I do that two to three hours every week. So you think when you need to come back and then write down your points when you we can, when you straight back? I uh, probably I'm on the email by the time I've I've had my first drink. Yeah. Okay. Do you mentor many people? 
that's, that's a, load, out, that's a load, out, load of questions. Outside the executive team. I um, look. One of the things that uh, one of the privileges I think of of being the CEO is trying to set the tone of how you make decisions and how you work. And and I like to create, invite people into the meetings where we make decisions that I think have the right content, not necessarily the right seniority. Okay. okay. And so so I, you will often find us picking people through the organization, putting them into the right room in the room to make the right decision. And then sometimes reasonably junior people, you know, get to work with me directly. Uh, if that's mentoring, then, you know, I'd say yes. Okay. I, I believe, you, you know, the mentoring, mentoring cannot be an abstract exercise where you have a cup of coffee once a month and say, how do you feel today? And how was your last month? I think it has to be on the substantive engagement. So you're a big believer throwing the young in the deep end, are you? Yeah. Okay. My CFO is 37. Absolutely. Okay. Are you concerned about the um, the potential slowdown or the headwinds we we uh, experiencing in the economy at the moment? Um, I'm you know, Australia's had thirty years almost of consecutive growth. It has, yeah. Um, it's not a, a country that's used to a dramatic slowdown. No. I'm not sure that we are structurally all that well geared for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I think you know if you. Having worked in the U.S., it's it's unbelievable how quickly companies adjust to different environments, uh, and I think it's the industrial um, regime facilitates that. It's easy to hire, it's easy to fire. Um, I think it's um, and people are willing to make those tough decisions, probably more so than here after thirty years of growth. Um, having said that, I also think we're we're jumping at shadows a little bit, you know. The economy is pretty strong, as far as I can tell. You know, unemployment is low. Our export surplus has been the biggest in a long time. Government debt's not really bad. No, no. Like, you know, we can talk ourselves into Agreed. into depression here, but yeah. I think the fundamentals are very, very good. You know, I've just been on, on my global roadshow in the U.S. We're talking to investors in the U.S. and New York, Europe. You know, I think there's much bigger clouds and issues other people have to deal with. We should just, you know, get down and do it. Okay. You talk about your, um, you learn from your experiences. What were the experiences you learned from after the Commonwealth Games? The Commonwealth Games illustrated to me two things. One is how a team, what a team can achieve when they're under the pump. Look, what I learned in the Gold Coast, from the Gold Coast uh, Com Games is two things. One is the team in the Gold Coast, our team, and the organizers did a phenomenal job. Now, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for a lot of people. Not a lot of people have experience and they, in running these events, and they've delivered, delivered in spades, delivered a great globally competitive product. I've also, I think it's also demonstrated how valuable non-gaming is to us. We had some phenomenally big days of just entertainment at our properties. And, you know, that's, I think, given us confidence that we need to do more of that sort of stuff. So who leads the way in that? Is that the Americans who lead the way in entertainment? Or is that Asia? Or is, no, it's, yeah, it's, it's clearly the US. So if you go to Vegas nowadays, yep. uh, 60% of revenue is non-gaming. Is it that much? Yeah. What's it, what's it in Macau? 95 gaming. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. And what's it, what's it roughly in Australia then? For us, it's just about um, 
yep. and changing. Okay. All right. Why should I keep investing in your in your business? I think it's a lot of question because you need to be a licensed investment advisor to, <laughs> to answer this one. But I'll tell you why why I think we're a great company. Yep. Um we're a great company because we build we're building on great macro trends. We're building on the fact that Australia has the deepest gaming market in the world on a per capita basis. And we have a huge ability to take market share in that market. We have this macro trend of hospitality, food and beverage, and yep. tourism. There's three distinct sources of growth that we can tap into. Okay. What about social media? What about it? Can change companies overnight. Yep. We have 22 million visitors to our properties every year. So there's 22 million opportunities for something good to come out of that yeah. or something bad to come out of that. Yep. So um, we obviously we obviously active on social media in terms of promotion, but we're probably even more active in terms of understanding what our customers are saying about us. And it's a very rich source of feedback, you know, not and a lot more direct than traditional customer survey tools. Okay. And where do you where do you think we are as a as a as a nation in a sense of narrative regards political correctness? Do you think we've gone too far? We just won an award uh, for being one of the leaders in diversity and inclusion, the yep. former Rogers Thompson Awards. Yep. Uh, I think we're number twenty five in the world. Um we early in the week we got confirmed as a in the Dow Jones sustainability index as a leader in our industry. Yes. And so, you know, the reason why we're doing these things and get rec recognition for that is not for political correctness or so we can talk, uh, tick some things. Uh, inclusiveness is a big core value, a central core value for us. And, you know, you look at our business, we go seamlessly from Lunar New Year, which is really an Asian-focused event in Sydney, yep. to Mardi Gras within a week. We are the core of inclusiveness. And... And and so you know, I I'm a big believer that it's a good value, it's a positive value, and it's one that is relevant to our business. And so as long as you back it up with action, I don't you know I don't think we have. If it's just about everybody saying the same thing about it mm -hmm. and not doing anything about it, then it's the wrong thing. I'll give you an example: mm. um, wage disparity. Yep between females and males. Yep. You know, we measure it every year. This year we're becoming well below the Australian standard average. I think the average is about 14%. Yep. We came in um, at about 11 and we had a choice. We could try, you know, with a little bit extra investment, try to reduce it further or not. Yep. We decided to push it down further um, by actively, you know, paying more to certain roles because we felt it was wrong. Mm -hmm. And so is it is that is that something that we do because we're politically correct? Not really. We're doing it because we think, you know, <laughs> there shouldn't be there should be no structural disparity. Okay. Makes sense. Where do you where do you see the business environment from your international experience in regards to we're at thirty percent tax. Mm. The the Americans have, have slashed their tax. A previous uh, individual joined us on the podcast and talked about getting tax rates at 6% in the likes of Singapore. Your country, your home country, Switzerland, we know of is doing very, very good deals for companies at the moment to incentivize them. Where, where do you think Australia is at? 
Look, I'm a, probably a bit of an outlier on that one. I think it's a zero-sum game because okay, a lower corporate tax rate will just translate into a different price earnings ratio and different pricing of equity. So, you know, from my point of view, there's not a shortage of capital in Australia that needs to be invested. If you look at our super funds, True. they don't yeah. know where to put it. Yeah. And so I'm not sure it's going to, you know, if we reduce the corporate tax rate, I don't think it would make the slightest difference. If we reduce the um, personal tax rate, yeah. that will stimulate consumer spending. Yeah. And we've seen that in the US and elsewhere. But I think the corporate tax rate is almost irrelevant. So are you concerned about the, the uh, over-focus on monetary policy then? Um, look, I, I think a lot of the traditional approaches to um, economic management have been proven to be relatively ineffectual. And so, you know, I just can't get too sanguine about it. Okay. You talked earlier about China. Yep. Australia's relationships with China, where, where would you put them? How much more time do we need to invest? A lot more. Look, um, I think the the discussion about China and how um, at risk we are from China, from my personal view, that's vastly overblown. You know, having having worked in China, I'm not sure China is all that concerned about Australia's position on a lot of things. Okay, um, you know, yeah. we're we're a lovely place to go and we're visit. Tiny little place in here. A lovely yeah. place to visit. Um, you know. They'd like to buy our iron ore, and if if not, they'll buy it from somebody else. Uh, coal, you know, so they don't have to deal with us. Yes, that's it's true. A convenient place to deal with. So I think we're overplaying our hand. So what would you do in the sense of embracing China more? I think, look, for our business, it's an important, very important source market for tourism. Yep. It's yep. the number one source market already. Yep. I think we can do a whole lot more to welcome Chinese visitors to this country. We should be doing a lot more. And it starts from the visa process to the language skills to the way people get treated when they arrive in Sydney Airport. And and can I ask you, as a chief exec, do you think from a perspective of other chief execs and government, there's enough dialogue about these issues? We are talking something bigger than the star. We are talking about the economy as a whole. Is there enough dialogue with people like yourself who actually know how China fundamentally work? Oh, God, there's... There's other people that know a lot more about China than me. Yes. I can just tell you from my point of view, from our business's point of view, there's not a lot of dialogue. And I'd love to love to have a whole lot more of that. Interesting. Okay. Matt, if you were um, going to wave the magic wand from a politician's mm-hmm. point of view, okay, and, the Australia, and Australia, what would you focus on? I think Australia is fantastic. I have lived in the US, I've lived in Europe, in multiple countries, I've lived in Africa um, for over a year. I've lived in, and I could have lived anywhere in the world, and there's no place where I'd rather live. I think this is a fantastic country, and we should just stop talking down the fundamental benefits and opportunities in front of us. I am, you know, as I said, I've just come back from Europe and the US, you know, (laughs) There's nothing any of these nations have on us. We're glass half empty all the time, aren't we? All the time. It just, you know, caught up with my brother and sister and had a whine about various governments, and they sort of took me blow by blow through what Norway looks like and Switzerland looks like. Like, Okay. I think we're doing okay. Okay. What about about innovation, Matt? 
do we actually do we talk it we talk the heading all day long do we practice it look we obviously don't practice it as much as israel or other countries yep. who you know have really been showing the way i think of of what risk taking looks like and how innovation should be should be encouraged um i am just not sure that there's that much room for government in that space you know mm -hmm. maybe tax incentives or you know um, it, it, maybe it's easier to write off uh, bad experiences, but ultimately it is a cultural question of, of whether we're willing to forgive mistakes. Mm. Which we're not we're very much the tall poppy syndrome in this country. Uh, a little bit, yeah. yeah. Okay. Matt, can I ask a very simple question? If you were to look back at the young Matt all those years ago, when you sat down with your mum and decided to go ahead and do economics, what would you have changed? Or what advice would you give that young man? I um, ticked boxes for too long. You know, I was quite focused on, you know, being, you know, getting a summa cum laude with my PhD, getting, you know, McKinsey making partner really young, you know, doing all the right things and sort of building my CV without any real clarity as to what purpose. And I ended up doing things for too long that I was neither particularly good at nor enjoying and so the advice i would give myself is to back myself earlier to do the things that i really want to do or think that i'm good at what are you good at now Matt? i actually think um, um and i see that when things get bumpy i'm really good at the rough stuff i'm really good at dealing with big change and and cutting through a lot of noise i i you know if i look back over my career it's those moments when there's intense pressure a lot of moving parts yeah. um i think the 15 years at mckinsey has just given me the the experience to cut through a lot of the noise and identify the facts that are really relevant and crystallize them into a direction i love doing that stuff and that's where this business is going now, fact-based. Yeah. Do you feel pressure? Everybody feels pressure. How do you deal with it then? I probably deal with it better than most, and I deal with it by talking to the people I really trust. Everybody, I hope, in my role has a couple of trusted advisors. Mine are, you know, I have some people inside the company that I can be totally open and uh, honest with and transparent, and I... I kick stuff around with my trusted advisors. And you do that when you make the big decisions? Yeah, always. So you never, you, you never go, go to bed at night and make the call yourself? You actually bounce most of them around? I go to bed at night. I process overnight. In the morning, I call a meeting. and say, I've been thinking about this. I'm worried about this. What do you think? I think there's three options. And what then do make, you think? And then make the call. Then we talk it through. Yeah, then we make the call. Matt, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, thank you. No, it was great. Good fun. Thank you.